before the human race harnessed the power of fire, there was only darkness. An inky black foreboding abyss that concealed danger, mystery, and fear. Into that darkness brave men would not venture. For as the map says, here there be monsters. Good evening, and welcome to Here There Be Monsters podcast. I am your captain, Derek Hayes. Tonight is the 69th anniversary of the Roswell, New Mexico flying saucer crash. So it only makes perfect sense to focus tonight's episode on the eyewitnesses of that event and those close to them. But first, the usual business. If you've had an encounter and would like to share your story please call the hotline at one 608 night That's one 608 Follow the prompt and record your detailed story after the beep. Now, if calling's not your thing, you can email me at herethebemonsterspodcast at gmail.com or head on over to the website, www.herethebemonsterspodcast.com and click on the Report Your Sighting tab. There you can submit anonymously. As I mentioned in last week's episode, if any of you have had an encounter with what I'm dubbing the mirrored men, I'm especially interested in hearing your account. For those that aren't familiar, I've had several listeners submit stories regarding three men in dark dress walking single file with mirrored movements. These mystery men have seemed to show up at weird times or in weird places and often bring with them chunks of missing time. So again, if you've experienced these strange beings, please, please reach out to me. I'm very interested in hearing your story. Now, let's get on with tonight's show. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. Army officers say the missile, found sometime last week, has been inspected at Roswell, New Mexico, and sent to Wright Field, Ohio, for further inspection. In early July of 1947, there were several reports of an object that crashed near the small town of Roswell, New Mexico. The timeline surrounding the event is widely disputed, with many offering contradictory claims, which only muddy the water further. The early reports from the U.S. Army were that an unidentified saucer-shaped craft had crashed in the desert some 75 miles north of the town of Roswell. The Army quickly recanted that story, claiming that what had actually crashed was an experimental high-altitude surveillance balloon. 
Many of the officials that first handled the debris claim it to be from otherworldly origins, and despite claimed pressure from mysterious government officials, they've stuck to their guns. Tonight, we will hear portions of nearly a dozen interviews from both witnesses and their immediate family. In addition to the interviews, I would do my best to work through the timeline of the events which cover a period of six days. July 2nd, 1947. A rancher named William Mac Brazel and a few others reportedly hear a loud crash during the night near Corona, New Mexico. In addition, two nuns at St. Mary Hospital in Roswell saw what they believed to be an airplane crash. The radar tower at the Roswell Army Base tracked and reported a descending flash that very same evening. July 3rd. 1947. Mac Brazel was routinely working the Foster Ranch, making rounds throughout the property with his employer's seven-year-old son, D. Proctor, when he discovered a debris field some 300 yards wide and a total of three-quarter of a mile long. He picked up a sack full of debris, which he called stuff. According to my dad, there was a bad thunderstorm the night before. The next day, he was out on the ranch and he found this debris and he picked it all up in his pickup and was talking to people and of course there was some talk about UFOs he was going to Roswell and as far as I know he got in touch with the sheriff's department they in turn called the air force then the air force got with dad and uh, swore him to secrecy and they came out to the ranch and picked up this debris. Wood, I call it wood, I don't know what it was. It was something like balsa wood, but uh, it wouldn't burn and I couldn't cut it with my knife. The Air Force tried to make him believe that it was a weather balloon. He said, Bill, he said, it was not a weather balloon. He said, I don't know what it was. But he said it was something altogether different and much bigger. That clip was taken from a series of interviews researcher and ufologist Stanton T. Friedman collected regarding the Roswell incident. It features Bill Brazel, son of the late Mac Brazel, the discoverer of the crash. July 5th, 1947. According to sources close to him, Mac Brazel hears about a $3,000 reward for debris of a crashed flying saucer. This prompts Brazel to take his sack full of debris to Sheriff George Wilcox in Roswell. Intrigued, Wilcox calls intelligence officer Major Jesse Marcel at the Roswell Army Field. Marcel quickly comes to town to investigate. July 6, 1947. Major Marcel drives to the sheriff's office in Roswell to inspect the wreckage. The next segment is of intelligence officer Jesse Marcel himself. And uh, what I saw, I couldn't believe there was so much of it. It was scattered over such a vast area. So we proceeded to pick up as much of the debris as we could, loaded in the wagon. We filled that up. It took us a good part of the day to do that, because uh, there were such small fragments that we had to do a lot of picking. We found a piece of metal about a, far, a foot and a half to two feet wide and about, about two or three feet long felt like you had nothing in your hands. It wasn't any thicker than the foil out of a pack of cigarettes. But the, the thing about it that got me is that you couldn't even bend it, you couldn't bend it. 
even with a sledgehammer would bounce off of it. So I knew that I had never seen anything like that before. And as of, as of now, I don't know what it was. It was not anything from this earth that I'm quite sure of. Because I was being an intelligence officer, I was familiar with just about every, all materials used in aircraft and in our air travel. This is nothing like that. It could not be. It could not have been. Marcel quickly reported his findings to his commanding officer, William Blanchard, who immediately ordered the recovery of the wreckage. Military police quickly arrived at the sheriff's office to confiscate the wreckage. They in turn take it back to Blanchard's office, July 7, 1947. Marcel again filled his vehicle with more wreckage, and at around 1 to 2 a.m. he showed his wife, son, and family friends the strange material he had found. On this particular evening, we're having bridge at Major Marcel's home. Uh, my wife was there, and all of intelligence was there playing bridge, except Jesse. He was out with a pickup gathering this junk in the debris field. So when he came in, it was fairly late, I believe. And we broke up the bridge game then to go out and see what Jess had brought in. And it was uh, a great interest. It was uh, aluminum in appearance. Uh, there were fragments of aircraft scanner, whatever the thing was, and also some girders. Uh, with pictures of hieroglyphic-like things on it. I took them to be owls, but uh, who knows? I think I did get to handle the material. The material had some peculiar properties. For instance, it looked like Hershey bar wrappings. And, but you squeeze it up in your hand as hard as you could, let go, and it returned originally to the original shape instantly. Then the next day, Jesse brought some of the stuff into the intelligence office. And uh, so we looked at it and played with it a while, and then everybody went back to work. Later that day, boom, nobody knows anything. Either shut up, nothing happened, uh, etc. And when you're in the service, you do what they say to do. Major Marcel was called up to Fort Worth to show the press what he found. Well, what he had to show the press was really a weather balloon. This stuff was not a weather balloon, what he brought back. So he was forced to lied to the press, shall we say. I don't think he was too happy about it, but you do what you're told again. You're in the service. You followed orders. And they were afraid of the American public panicking with this knowledge. I don't think that would have happened, but I... The word came down from up above, and you do what it says. That testimony was that of First Lieutenant Jack Tobridge, and was found on Part 1 of the Roswell Confessions, New Witness Testimony. Marcel's son, Jesse Jr., later recalled that there were 
pink, purple, and lavender symbols along the center sections of some of the small metallic I-beams in the debris. Now we hear from Jesse Marcel's son, Jesse Jr. My dad uh, was the uh, base intelligence officer here at the Roswell Army Airfield in 1947. When we first were stationed at the air base, we lived in base housing. Apparently something uh, crashed on the Foster Ranch, which is about 75 miles northwest of Roswell. Uh, the rancher didn't know what it was. The sheriff of Chavez County did not know what it was. So anyway, they contacted uh, Colonel Blanchard, who was the uh, base commander at the Roswell Army Airfield. Uh, so he sent my dad out with a CIC agent to investigate what this was. And the rancher took him out to a debris field where something splattered against the ground, leaving a wide swath of debris, uh, maybe half mile long, three quarters of a mile long, or half mile wide. So what they did was to gather up respective pieces of this and then drive it back into Roswell. As it happens, our house was on the way to the airbase. Uh, even though it was uh, late in the evening, early in the morning, my dad wanted to show my mother and myself uh, remnants of, uh, of something that crashed out there. He had pre-positioned material on the kitchen floor, and he got my mother and myself up to look at this. I think my mother was up first, though. So I walked into the kitchen. And I saw all this junk on the floor. I thought, what in the world is he doing getting me up at uh, this ungodly hour? So anyway, he says, look at this. Again, I think he used the words flying saucer uh, in connection with the debris. So I started looking at the foil. I thought, well, what is this? This is kind of a strange material here. And I didn't try to bend it or tear it or deform it. Uh, my dad did, though. And, uh, uh, and, and when he got back to the base, and he said it could not be uh, permanently dented. One of his... Uh, guys worked with him, took a sledgehammer and tried to bend it. Uh, no permanent deformity with it at all. So this is very strange material. The next thing I looked at, well, they, there's some little beams on the floor too. So I picked one of them, it looked like metallic. Uh, uh, the strangest part of that was, there was some writing or some sort of a, uh, writing along the inside surface of this. When I first saw that, I thought, ah, oh, this looks like Egyptian hieroglyphics. But uh, closer inspection, it was not hieroglyphics is more like uh, geometric symbols, like uh, oblate spheroids, triangles, truncated triangles, uh, various uh, shapes along the inside surface. They're violet, purple, hue, semi-reflective of light. In other words, if you held up like that to the light over your shoulder, they would reflect back at you to some degree. Uh, and that was, the, I guess, the most weird part of the whole thing there. That interview was part of a series found on openminds.tv. July 8, 1947. The wreckage was then reportedly flown to 8th Air Force Headquarters in Fort Worth, Texas, and from there to Wright Field near Dayton, Ohio. Subsequently, information regarding a UFO crash hits the AP wire. The only newspapers that carried the initial flying saucer version of the story were the evening papers from the Midwest to the West, including the Chicago Daily News, the Los Angeles Herald Express, the San Francisco Examiner, and the Roswell Daily Record. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. Army officers say the missile, found sometime last week, has been inspected at Roswell, New Mexico, and sent to Wright Field, Ohio, for further inspection. 
Late this afternoon, a bulletin from New Mexico suggested that the widely publicized mystery of the flying saucers may soon be solved. Army Air Force officers reported that one of the strange disks had been found and inspected sometime last week. Our correspondents in Los Angeles and Chicago have been in contact with Army officials endeavoring to obtain all possible late information. Joe Wilson reports to us now from Chicago. The Army may be getting to the bottom of all this talk about the so-called flying saucers. As a matter of fact, the 509th Atomic Bomb Group headquarters at Roswell, New Mexico, reports that it has received one of the disks which landed on a ranch outside Roswell. The disk landed at a ranch at Corona, New Mexico, and the rancher turned it over to the Air Force. Rancher W.W. Brizel was the man who discovered the saucer. Colonel William Blanchard of the Roswell Air Base refuses to give details of what the flying disk looks like. In Fort Worth, Texas, where the object was first sent, Brigadier General Roger Ramey says that it is being shipped by air to the AAF Research Center at Wright Field, Ohio. A few moments ago, I talked to officials at Wright Field, and they declared that they expect the so-called flying saucer to be delivered there, but that it hasn't arrived as yet. In the meantime, General Ramey describes the object as being of flimsy construction, almost like a box type. He says that it was so battered that he was unable to determine whether it had a disc form, and he does not indicate its size. Ramey says that so far as can be determined, no one saw the object in the air, and he describes it as being made of some sort of tinfoil. Other Army officials say that further information indicates that the object had a diameter of about 20 to 25 feet, and that nothing in the apparent construction indicated any capacity for speed, and that there was no evidence of a power plant. The disc also appeared too flimsy to carry a man. Now, back to Taylor Grant in New York. By the next day, the Army quickly pulled a 180 on their story, claiming that the crash was simply a downed surveillance balloon. For the next 20 years, the story lay dormant. Little was mentioned about the event, that is, until the witnesses began to age. One by one, aging observers came out of the woodwork with near-unbelievable stories about recovered saucers and several small victims thought to be extraterrestrial in nature. The subsequent excerpt is from Roswell 1, Conspiracy X, Government Secrets, and features eyewitness Frank Kaufman. The craft itself, I would say, maybe might have been, I don't know, sure, maybe about 20, 25 feet in length, maybe 6 feet in height, possibly about 15 feet maybe in width. There was a uh, metallic smell, you know, around the craft. Inside a craft had sort of a kind of bluish, greenish light. See, there was quite a console out in front, and there was a little console in the back of the craft. As I said, I didn't go through the craft with with a fine-tooth comb. I didn't didn't spend that much time uh, checking out all the details, see, because uh, as I said, we had to get that that damn thing out of there, you know, and. Uh, before daylight, and when we got got it on the on the on the flatbed, see, which we had one hell of a time getting it out of the air because of the of the the mud, you know, sliding all over the place. We put a tarp over it and had part of the craft exposed, see, and we went right down Main Street with it. But people looked at it, you know. There again, it was a common sight, you know. They would always see some craft on a on a flatbed going down Main Street. See, they looked at it and had another plane, something like that. 
Oh yeah, they were. They were. They didn't have any of these, you know, slanted eyes or horny fingers, you know, anything like that. They were. I don't know whether you want to call them people or so. I call them people because that's what I'm accustomed to looking at somebody as people, see. They were good-looking people, you know, uh, fine-skinned. They were kind of ash-colored. That was the color of their skin. Eyes were just a little bit larger than ours, you know, more pronounced. Small nose, a little small mouth, very small ears, no hair. Uh, very fine features, very well built. Maybe five four, five five in height. That's what I could remember seeing. For further description of the bodies recovered, we hear from Glenn Davis, the mortician in Roswell, New Mexico in nineteen forty seven, and the mortician on contract with the local army base. Well our mortuary had the contract for all military services out at the Roswell Army Airfield. And this uh, Gentleman called and said he was a mortuary officer at the base. He needed some information. I said, what do you need? And he said, uh, how many uh, hermetically sealed infant caskets do you have? Three and a half, four foot in stock. And I said, we don't have any. How long would it take you to get them? And I said, well, I can call Amarillo by 3.30 this afternoon and have them in here in the morning. I said, what's going on? He said, that's not important. I said, well, it is important also, but anyway. Then I hung up. Then he uh, called back later and he said, uh, I need more information. And uh, you want to know what embalming chemicals that would alter the tissue, the stomach contents, and what is our preparation for uh, taking care of bodies that are laying out in the elements for several days. And I said, you're the mortuary officer and you're asking me because I do it your way, you know. I was trying to find out who I was talking to. That clip comes courtesy of serious disclosure. And lastly, and probably most disturbingly, we head back to Roswell Confessions, new witness testimonies. In the following clip is a second-hand account from Pat Bush, Miriam Bush's sister-in-law. Miriam Bush was an executive secretary working under hospital administrator and chief medical officer, Lieutenant Colonel Harold Warren at the Roswell Army Air Force Base Hospital back in 1947. The head of the hospital there came to her one evening or one afternoon and said, I think there's something you would like to see. And he took her down to the surgical suite or whatever it was in the hospital where they had brought these beings. And um, they took her into the room and she saw them. They wouldn't let her get close to them, but she stood by the doorway and and looked at them. As she was looking at them, one of them moved its middle finger on its hand. The hand moved, so it was whatever it was was living at that time. She went home that evening, and she was excited about what she had seen, and she sat at the dinner table and told the family what she had seen and what they had told her had happened. And they were all interested and asked questions. And the next day when she came in from work, she was very somber. And she just told them, don't ever mention what I told you. And don't ever ask me anything about it. And she was very frightened. I felt very sorry for her 
because she lived a very frightened life because they they had told her not to ever speak of it again and, and what the consequences would be and she was frightened her whole life long about it. She passed away in this unusual way and we started kind of looking at things and talking to people and realizing that many of the other people that were involved in it had died mysterious deaths or disappearances. Of course, this is only one side of the argument. For every witness that comes forward, another expert steps up to debunk or refute their outlandish claims. Perhaps we will never know the full truth of what happened that day back in 47. As witnesses in their kin age, the truth seems to slip further and further away. In recent years, the U.S. government released further details on the incident, claiming the balloon was from a top-secret spy mission known as Project Mogul. This could explain some of the secrecy and subsequent cover-up, but does it explain it all? I encourage you to research this topic on your own. I've barely exposed the tip of this iceberg. There are layers within layers of this story that can lead to the deepest and darkest of rabbit holes. It's up to you whether or not you want to delve into them. Before I close out, I want to remind you to please follow the show on Facebook and Instagram. If you're listening on iTunes, please rate and review the show. Help support the show monetarily by shopping at the Rag and Bone Emporium, an oddity shop filled with dark arts and eerie historical reproductions. Search the Rag and Bone Emporium on Etsy.com or simply visit www.HearTheBeMonstersPodcast.com and click the Support the Show tab. You'll find a direct link there. And as an added bonus to my listeners, punch in the code MONSTER at checkout for 5% off your total purchase. While you're on the site, check out the show notes for the full version of all the interviews featured in tonight's show. Lastly, as promised in last week's episode, a new mini-version of the show will be released soon. Dubbed Here There Be Monsters Podcast Bare Bones, the short piece will feature one listener-submitted tale each week. Just a little something to hold you over until the following week's show. Look for the first installment coming this Sunday evening. Alright folks, that's it for tonight. Thank you all so much for listening, and until next week...